0: Jesse, last week's pre-stalker situation was so strange. Who's the villain today?
1: When a recent parolee, driven insane by jealousy, brutally murders four innocent people on one deadly day in 2010, the authorities dig into his past to discover that the quadruple murder wasn't his first homicide. I'm Andy Cassette, and I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder.
0: Jessie.
1: Welcome back everyone to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong. Whether it's asinine affairs, gruesome threesomes, or in this case, jailbird lovers.
0: You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you
1: enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. Okay, Andy. So I got to give you a little bit of a warning on this one because I jump right into it. And the crime scene is gruesome in this one. (sighs) Yeah, it's one of those. It's one of those. I know that... You know, we managed to always have a good time together, uh, <laughs> uh, no matter what, no matter what we're talking about. And I'm so grateful for that. But I just want to warn you and everybody no, who's I listening.
0: Think I, I think I can handle it today. Um, but it's definitely weird. Like, I, I'm feeling a little bit of like the nausea. I'm two weeks out from due date right now. Yeah. We Yesterday guys, we, was two We weeks.
1: are... We are at the very end. And of course, Andy's a week ahead of me. So she is feeling it. Well,
0: technically, but not according to your doctors.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I might might skip the line. So we'll see. I'm trying to like coordinate it right now so I can be like induced on Andy's due date. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so there's a chance Andy and I could have some love murder twinsies
0: coastal twinsies.
1: Bicoastal twinsies. Even my, though my mother-in-law was like, she was like really into the plan. Bethany loves Andy. It's like her additional <laughs> daughter-in-law, of course. And um, so when I told her that we were going to try to see if we could match up when we have the baby, she's like, oh, if you guys are both induced, make sure that Andy actually goes ahead of you because second time mothers go faster and you already had a pretty fast labor the first time. So she's like, you guys should arrange it. So Andy gets the first slot and then the times will match up perfectly. And I was like, Bethany, you're a genius.
0: So sweet. So sweet. She's
1: so excited for her two <laughs> new grandbabies. Oh
0: my God. Thank God she is. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. So we we have already had the babies by this point that you guys are listening to this. Um, I'm sure you've known about it for weeks at this point because we are almost done with our maternity episodes we're recording this actually on Valentine's Day and we only have two more after this and then we will be back to live. So you have this episode, two more that we're recording ahead of time and then we will be back and probably exhausted.
0: Back and exhausted and happy to be recording again.
1: Very happy to be with you guys and with each other again, although I'm sure we'll still be talking every single day.
0: The baby's moving again because of your voice oh
1: my little buddy yeah i cannot wait thank god andy didn't find out whether she's having a girl or a boy because it's really like adding a lot of suspense to the <laughs> to the season finale of andy's pregnancy here So you guys will have to watch the Instagram. Oh, like I said, actually, they already know. But anyways, we'll (laughs) post it on the Instagram. (laughs) You guys are like, this is old news. Why are you still talking about it? No one cares. (laughs) Murder. Okay. Murder. Back to murder. And today I am delivering a lot of murder to all y'all's faces. So let's jump right in. On June 26th, 2010, off-duty Pennsylvania State Police Corporal Mark Rollins noticed a gold Pontiac Grand Prix swerving and speeding down Route 329 and immediately suspected a drunk driver. He pulled his own car to the side of the road to avoid an accident with the careening automobile and then watched in horror as the Pontiac flew off the roadway, became airborne, and then crashed loudly into a patch of trees in a grassy shoulder area. Rowlands immediately jumped into trooper mode, calling in the crash to the station, turning his own emergency lights on, and approaching the crumpled vehicle. Rowlands identified himself as an off-duty officer and approached the driver of the vehicle. The extensive damage and hard impact had caused both airbags to deploy. A white male in his mid-30s was slumped over with his lower body in the driver's seat, but his torso thrown towards the passenger seat. Thankfully, there were no other passengers in the car. Upon closer inspection, the man appeared to be covered in blood, particularly around the crotch and waist area. Yeah, not not good. The entire front seat was completely crimson. As Rowlands communicated the seriousness of the accident to EMS, the injured man began to stir, and within minutes, he seemed to regain consciousness. Corporal Rowlands identified himself and asked the man what his name was. Michael, the man said, wincing in pain. Where are you coming from, Michael? I just killed everyone. Rowlands, taken aback, said, what do you mean? He goes, it's obvious. I just killed them all. So this is the story of an incredibly dangerous man who, when motivated by jealousy, callously stabbed four innocent people to death in a blood-soaked frenzy. And it wasn't this dirtbag's first rodeo. Uh Uh-oh, he had other rodeos? Oh, yeah. Murder rodeos. Before Corporal Rollins even ran the plates on the car to ascertain where the man's victims could be, Northampton police officers were responding to a call about multiple stabbings at a nice middle-class townhouse. Number 1917 Lincoln Avenue was one half of a large double home atop a grassy hill with a brick front porch and overflowing window boxes of colorful flowers. It would have been a beautiful house had it not been for the crowds of people outside hysterically crying and screaming. Among them was Janet Zernhelt, a 54-year-old woman who lived at 1915, the other side of the twin home. She said her husband was in the house and kept shouting, help him, help him, help them. Very quickly, the responding officers realized they could offer the poor souls inside no help and no respite other than to find their killer as soon as possible. Later on, the district attorney would say it was the worst crime scene he had ever seen. So this is where it gets a little gory, guys. Blood was everywhere. Droplets covered the porch and entryway like a Jackson Pollock painting. The front door opened into a living room area where a middle-aged man lay in a thick pool of blood in the fetal position. The man who would later be identified as Janet's husband Steven Zernhout. Steven had been stabbed in the face, throat, hands, and upper torso more than 20 times. The face? The face. Fucking brutal. It was, it was, this whole thing is like an insane frenzy of violence. A trail of blood led through the dining room into the kitchen where an even more gruesome scene met the first responders. A brunette woman in her late 30s lay savaged on her back, surrounded by blood. The woman was Denise Murphy, and the police would quickly conclude that she was the target of the passionate attack. An autopsy would later show that Denise had been stabbed more than 43 times. More than Jesus. twice of any of the victims, other victims. Denise had been stabbed on just about every part of her upper body. Several stab wounds pierced her lungs. Her skull had been fractured due to the many knife cuts into the bone. Oof. Yeah. The forensic pathologist would later testify that her lungs, esophagus, and stomach were all filled with blood. She was basically breathing blood, Dr. Land said. She was alive when all of these wounds were inflicted.
0: What? How? How do they know that and how?
1: Also, based on the fact that she inhaled the the blood, because if she was already dead, it wouldn't be present in her lungs and esophagus. But if
0: you stab someone, wouldn't it leak through?
1: I guess they have ways of telling whether it was breathed in or whether it was leaked in. That's and also, brutal. I think it like kind of leaks out. That's rather than in. Uh... Yeah, this is, I told you, we, we're starting off right with the gore. So we're getting it out of the way kind of early this episode. Uh, the cupboards in the kitchen were stained with blood and the officers noticed bloody footprints around the corpse. They appeared to have been made with worn work boots. Denise's limp hand appeared to be pointing or reaching into the next room where they found a tiny bedroom, most of the space taken up by a hospital bed. In the middle of the room, an elderly man lay, head back in a wheelchair, just feet away from a small television set that was set to a baseball game. If not for the gruesome gash at his throat, you would think he was just dozing like a grandpa does, you know?
0: Grandpa does. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The older gentleman would later be identified as Denise Murphy's 87-year-old grandfather, Alvin Marsh, a World War II veteran. Alvin had been stabbed eight times, mostly on and around his neck and chest. Like his granddaughter, he had breathed in a considerable amount of blood, and his voice box had been severely damaged. A lifeline alarm was still wrapped around his neck and drenched in blood. He didn't even get a chance to push the alarm. The middle finger of his left hand was shredded as if he had tried to block the attacker with his hand before he died. Hours later, the authorities would find another victim and a horrifying message written in blood in the basement apartment hidden under a white quilt with fuchsia stars. It was Dennis Marsh, Denise's 62-year-old father, a parts clerk and truck manufacturer who lived in the home with Denise his father, Alvin, and Denise's two children, Annika and Tristan. Dennis was stabbed more than 15 times and appeared to have put up quite the struggle. Above Dennis's body was a message written in blood on the white wall. It read, Denise is a whore. Oh. Yep. It was a deeply unsettling crime scene, clearly. So outside, the detectives were questioning a shell-shocked Janet, the wife of Stephen, and the neighbor to the other three victims. Janet said that she and Stephen, who were only one month shy of celebrating their 35th wedding anniversary, had been home watching a movie when they heard a commotion from next door. The couple, who had three grown children who had been raised in number 1915 Lincoln Avenue, had intended on taking their boat out on Belzer Lake. Boating was a passion of Stevens. Tragically, they decided to stay home that terrible day. While watching the movie, the two heard a loud scream. That didn't sound right, Steve had said to her. Maybe someone got hurt. So here is Janet's account of what happened next. As written in our primary text today, which is classic, Jesse just introducing it right now. Uh, The book that I used is called Fatal Jealousy. And you may recall husband and wife journalism team, Colin McAvoy and Lynn Olenoff from last week's episode. Like I said, we are back with them today because I cannot get enough of their Pennsylvania murder stories. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, thank you, Colin and Lynn. We have used number two of your books right now. How many do they have in total? I think that they have more. They have at least these two. I think this one was published first, maybe. So um, I will look into it and see if they have any more um, because I like like the way they work it. No diggity. I'd like to look them up. Oh, wow. I didn't really give you space to end that one. It could have been perfect.
0: No, it's okay.
1: It's okay. We're both deeply, deeply pregnant. So you guys have to forgive us right now. All right, so here is Janet's account of what happened as written in Fatal Jealousy. In the past, Janet had heard Denise scream after her grandfather, Alvin, had fallen in the yard, and they thought perhaps something like that had happened again. Steve went to the next door porch and knocked on the front door to see if everything was all right. When nobody answered, he walked to the other side of the house to see if Denise or Dennis was in the porch out back. But nobody was there, even though both Denise's and Dennis's cars were parked nearby. That's very
0: confusing.
1: It's very confusing. The Denise Dennis thing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was one of those situations where they had a girl and they probably would have named a boy Dennis Jr. Yeah. And no, like, it's,
0: it's better that it's a dad and a daughter for sure than like a brother and sister. Exactly. Because that would have been yeah. real distracting. Yeah.
1: Steve finally returned to his wife and they resumed their movie. But a short while later, they heard screaming again. And soon a woman was pounding on their front door. When they opened it, they found Debbie Hawkey, Denise's cousin-in-law. Although they didn't know her by name at the time, standing in the doorway, shaking, terrified, clutching a cell phone in her hand. Call 911, she screamed. Call 911. Who are you? Steve asked. I'm the cousin, she said hysterically. Don't make me go in there. There's blood all over. Without hesitation, Steve rushed past Debbie and jumped over the small brick wall that separated the two porches, then rushed through Denise's front door. He went so quickly that he didn't even bother putting on his shoes. Steve, you don't have your shoes on, Janet called to him. It was the last thing she would ever say to her husband.
0: Ah, that's devastating.
1: He's just such a hero. Like, he didn't even think about it. He didn't stop. He didn't go like, Hey babe, maybe I should go check out what's going on over there. He just immediately flew into action to help somebody out. Ugh,
0: I would have been so mad at Dan though.
1: Oh my god, I would have. Na- I like, I would have been like proud that my husband's such a good person, yeah. but I would have been devastated and like angry at him forever because yeah. I lost my best friend. Oh god, it makes me <sighs> sick. Yep. Janet grabbed a phone from the receiver near the door and called nine one one. Debbie, still in a panic, ran past her into Janet's kitchen, but Janet was too distracted and frightened to notice. She told the 911 dispatcher there was some sort of disturbance and repeatedly asked them to send someone to their address. Janet could hear noises next door. She couldn't make out any words, but she heard some sort of commotion, a fight of something or some sort. Also, um, I probably would have
0: followed his ass.
1: You definitely would have, you yeah. dumbass. Yeah. You would have
0: been like, I just like her dance. <laughs>
1: You also you would do it like today. You'd be nine months pregnant, and you'd be like, grab like a, a plant pot, like the running. only yep. thing. <laughs> like the planter from like your front door, and be like, "I'll just hit him over the head."
0: Grab a cactus paddle.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what you would do. I would not. I would be like,
0: well, Hero's I don't got think Daniel would run either. No I, mean,
1: I think they would be like, no, they like, There's
0: be like, some shit going on over there.
1: Yeah, over here it's like. Mm. country folk don't mess with other country folks business. Mm -mm. Okay. So Janet could hear noises next door. She couldn't make any of the words, but she heard some sort of commotion. At one point, she looked out her front door at Denise's porch and saw a figure emerge. But with the screen door blocking her view, she couldn't make out who it was. Janet waited a few more minutes. It felt like hours, but the police had still not arrived. She knew something was wrong and she couldn't stand to leave Steve there any longer. She quickly went to her pantry to see if she could find something, a hammer, maybe anything she could use to protect herself or her husband if she had to. When she couldn't find anything right away, she abandoned the idea and rushed out of her house and over to Denise's door. I went in there. I saw my husband in a pool of blood, she later said. I just, I was standing there over the body. Janet knew immediately that Steve was dead. She didn't see how he could possibly be alive. There was just so much blood. At first, she couldn't react. She was in a state of shock. Her body had gone completely numb. She couldn't do anything but stand there and stare at the body of her husband. I saw him, she later said. I didn't know how he could have been alive. He bled all over. I saw his face and just the pools of blood. Oh, what a hero and just so heartbreaking for janet they were married for so long three beautiful grown children all successful like they did such a good job you know loving each other and loving their kids
0: i know and they didn't get to have their golden years together
1: it's devastating the police also spoke to debbie who was one of denise's best friends as well as the wife of her cousin and confirmed Janet's account. Debbie and her two young sons had spent the last three days with Denise and her children, Annika and Tristan, at the beach in Seaside Heights, New Jersey to celebrate Anika's 10th birthday. It's um, Annika or Anika, and I'm not entirely sure. So I'm I'm gonna, go with, so I'm gonna go with they're both gorgeous. I'm gonna go with Annika, but if it's Anika, forgive me. Um so yes, the police were of course immediately worried about the kids. But they were blessedly not home. The kids had stayed on the Jersey Shore with their grandmother, uh, Denise's mother, Geraldine.
0: Is it A-N-N-I?
1: It's A-N-N-I-K-A-H. Yeah, I think. So I think it's Annika, but the um, book on tape person said Anika.
0: Huh. I would think Anika yeah. would be just one N.
1: Me too. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go with Annika, but cool. maybe it's Anika.
0: Or Annika. Um,
1: or Annika. Yeah. So yeah, the police believed 100% had the children been there, they would have been killed as well, which For I sure, do. yeah, Yeah. As it happened, Debbie barely got out of there with her life. The two women and their kids had arrived home late the night before, and Debbie made plans to come pick up her van from Denise's house on Saturday. When she didn't find the keys in the mailbox, as Denise had promised, she entered the unlocked house to collect them. This was not unusual, and Debbie had stopped by uninvited plenty of times in the past. So she hollered, hello, anybody home, and walked through the living room and into the dining room, where she spied her keys on the table. So she placed her purse down, and she stepped into the kitchen, where to her horror and disbelief, she found Denise laying in a pool of blood. And then she heard a noise. So somebody was still in the house with her at this Uh. point. So she freaked the F out, obviously. And she ran out in a panic. And then she realized she had like left her purse in the house. But her quick action definitely saved her life. I mean, this guy was going to kill everybody who walked in that door, you know? Yeah, your purse is not worth it. (laughs) Nope. After realizing that her husband wasn't in front of the house because he had, like, basically dropped her off to pick up her keys and drive the van home. Okay. He approached the health to get them to call 911. Later, another neighbor, 14-year-old Emily Germani, saw a shirtless man come out through Denise's front porch covered in blood and appearing to be trying to flick it off his hands, which would make sense with the blood spatter on the front porch that the police later noticed. Ugh. He met her eyes, doubled back into the house, and then emerged again to take off in Denise's gold Pontiac Grand Prix. Emily recognized the man as Denise's boyfriend, a scumbag named Michael Eric
0: Ballard. Michael Eric. Michael Eric.
1: So he goes by Michael with everybody in this part of the story, but in his childhood, he went by his middle name, Eric Of course, by now, Michael had crashed the car and was being rushed to the hospital. Ballard continued to fall in and out of consciousness, and there was a deep, severe cut on his right thigh that had resulted in tremendous blood loss. So he was on death's door at this point. The surgical team admitted him right away and got to work. When the investigators discovered who and where he was, they sent a guard to be stationed outside of his room, and they set to finding out more about their main suspect and his unfortunate victims. Immediately, yeah. I mean, he's the only. He said it. He was like, "I killed them all." And yeah. obviously, when they ran the registration, it was registered to Denise. And that su- that scene had already been discovered. So this yeah. requires not like the most police work to put this together here.
0: Not a lot and of mystery in this
1: episode. No. Yeah, <laughs> I would hope
0: not. <laughs> I killed them all. Oh, maybe we should put you up on the suspect board. <laughs>
1: Well, this guy said he killed them all, but I think we should look over. So, yeah. So, immediately, you know, they obviously do a background check on him, and they discover that this was not Ballard's first murder. In 1991, at only 18 years old, Michael Ballard had stabbed a man to death in an apartment in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Why is he just running around then? He had just gotten out on parole. So let's go back and talk about this murderous POS and how he ensnared sweet single mother Denise Murphy.
0: Ugh, I hate this guy.
1: Ugh, this guy is the fucking worst. He is just, yeah, there's just nothing redeeming about him whatsoever. I mean, we'll see. Like. Just when you think he couldn't get worse, or then you kind of like, you hear about his child and you're like, oh, I kind of feel bad for him. Then he does something else and you're like, okay, screw this guy. Yeah. Michael was born on August 14th, 1973 in rural Arkansas, the first and only biological child of Mickey and Nita Mae Ballard. Mickey was an accountant and bookkeeper, and Nita was a nurse. Growing up, Michael went by his middle name, Eric, though both parents had respectable jobs. For some reason, the family lived in circumstances akin to poverty. They had no electricity or running water. The family even went to the bathroom in a bucket. Nor did they see doctors, even when little Michael Eric was run over by a car at age five and they thought he was dead. When Michael was a toddler, his father, Mickey, came home from work to find wife, Nita, in a pickup truck with another man. <sighs> yep. Don't sit in pickup trucks with strange men. Is that rural Arkansas. In rural Arkansas. Suspecting an affair, Mickey threw her off the property and filed Suspecting. for divorce.
0: Well, I don't know. You could just sit in a sit in a truck right oh uh, sorry i thought you said they were fucking in the truck no they were just sitting in the truck and then he suspected an affair i'm like oh not the brightest crane in the box over here huh (laughs) i'm
1: gonna need some i'm gonna need some more evidence just like the police officers in this case (laughs) the police officers in this case were great so don't let me make a joke that (laughs) derides that Okay, so yes, they were sitting in the truck. He suspected an affair anyway, it seems like. I think something else was going on. So he threw her off the property and he filed for divorce. And eventually after a brutal and bitter divorce and custody battle, Mickey was awarded custody of little Michael Eric. And Nita pretty much confirmed that she was having an affair because she then ran off to Hawaii with the pickup truck guy and got married to him. Cool, yeah, so she's in Hawaii, and she left her son, though, so not cool because this kid got really badly abused after she left,
0: yeah, I was saying more about her, like living in Hawaii, but
1: yeah, yes. that's nice, I mean yeah. rural Arkansas or Hawaii, are you kidding me?
0: yeah, but I that's like hard leaving your kid,
1: yeah, and i I think she probably came to regret that because things went very wrong for Michael Eric. there's like this is a case of. A lot of nature, but, like, shit tons of nurture that happened to this
0: poor guy. Yeah, I would I would feel bad, too, if he became – my son became a murderous piece of shit.
1: Yes, absolutely. You have to take some culpability when your child becomes a multi-murderer to be like, yeah. hmm, maybe I could have made some different choices in my life. Um. Yeah, and the, the custody battle was, like, pretty gruesome. It was one of those things where – Like, neither party really cares about the kid. They just want to hurt the partner. Yeah. And as soon as Mickey got, you know, Michael, he didn't give a shit at all. He was neglectful. He was even abusive. And he was, like, poisoning his psyche at a young age because he had such a deep hatred of Nita, Michael's mother, That he would just be like, we never speak of her if he ever brought up his mother. I guess like at one point, Michael was singing the Bumblebee song. Like, um, and there's some line in the like, my mommy told me not to or something play with the Bumblebee. I don't know. I don't remember that song. But um, he mentioned like a mommy figure in the like, his dad beat the crap out of him just for like mentioning a mom.
0: Yeah, that's not healthy.
1: No, and obviously it was such a young age that this really colored his treatment and his thoughts about women in general. Of course,
0: of course, of course.
1: So eventually Mickey dumped off the child with his elderly amputee mother, who naturally having one leg and being old had trouble keeping up with the boisterous toddler. Michael was eventually foisted off again on his grandmother's aid, a woman named Laverne Cook psychological experts would later say being constantly displaced and moved around created major abandonment issues for Ballard, particularly when it came to the women in his life. Because like he didn't know about his parents' custody battle because he was really little at the time. So it just seemed like his mom disappeared. And then it seemed like his grandmother didn't want to take care of him. And then it seemed like Laverne didn't want to take care of him. So he's not blaming his father for any of this. He's blaming the women that are taking care of him for, you know, moving him on to the next person, you know? Yeah. After Laverne, Michael was bounced around to various family members and was allegedly molested by a female family member around the age of five.
0: Whoa.
1: <sighs> so this is like three strikes against women before the, he's six years old.
0: How does it even happen?
1: I mean, it's it's less common than men molesters, but women can molest too. Equal opportunity.
0: Oh, God. It's
1: disgusting. I mean, it's disgusting. Ugh. So eventually his mother returned. It seemed like the relationship in Hawaii didn't work out. She came back to Arkansas, and she successfully regained custody when Michael was seven years old. Ballad's parents eventually remarried, but wow. this was no... Yeah, this was not... A cutesy like parent trap moment over here. This was a toxic bad situation for this the whole was, family.
0: This was like a two thousand like eight Lindsay Lohan situation. <laughs>
1: yes, this was not nineteen nineties cute little Lindsay Lohan. This was like <laughs> this is like the cocaine Paris era. Hill
0: Inn. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: That's exactly what it was because both parents abused alcohol and drugs and they fought constantly. Mickey was in and out of prison for assault and drunken disorderlies. And when he was home, he wasn't much of a role model. He got Michael Eric drunk for the first time at 13 years old and allowed him to partake in serious mind-altering drugs. Wow. A child, yeah, like Siri, a childhood friend of Ballard said between 13 and 16, they experimented with marijuana, which is like whatever. but, yeah, also, but it is
0: a gateway drug. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but also, wait, listen to this. Between the ages of 13 and 16,
0: they also experimented with meth, cocaine, and acid. You, I mean, honestly, you really shouldn't do any drugs until you're like eighteen to twenty. You shouldn't even do marijuana. Still, like, no,
1: no. no. you shouldn't be doing really, any of this shit.
0: No, you gotta yeah. let your brain like develop, and then it's so much more fun when you're older, too. Like, yeah, guys, it's not-
1: wait till you're older for like everything. I swear to God, I waited, I waited till I was like eighteen for like sex and drinking and like. 20s for any experimental drug use and yeah it's really fun as an adult when you're prepared for these things i don't know if we have any young listeners but no bueno no bueno bueno for real don't do it it's it's not worth it wait till your brain is formed and then fuck it up (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly and ballard later estimated to taking more than a hundred hits of acid during the summers of high school. Oh, so he like crossed over. Oh, yeah, he is. I mean, this is what I'm saying. Like, we're going to get into some more stuff later on. Like, there's a lot of, they do a neuro scan on him, like an MRI. And he also had extensive brain damage, like not yeah. from the drug use, but also from brain injuries. Um, he, This guy was, I mean, he was fucked. It was like psychologically fucked. The drugs fucked with his brain. And then he also was, he got, I'll like laid out later, but he got hit in the head numerous times. So this was just all together like a powder keg waiting to happen. Yeah. Uh, By 10th grade, he was failing almost every single class and dropped out entirely in 11th grade. Michael had become also sexually active as early as 13 years old, and his only interests were girls, drinking, drugs, and an alarming amount of violence. Not only was he constantly, you know, fighting other teenagers or anyone who looked at him wrong, he developed quite the appetite for torture. So you're not going to like this. I mean, no one's going to like this. No one likes this. But he would kill cats by putting them in household appliances like clothes dryers or microwaves. Are you fucking serious? And they didn't flag this shit? I don't know who was watching him. I don't know where he was doing it. I don't think anyone gave a shit about this kid, which is the problem. Um wow. he also one of his friends said at one point while they were like camping or something and they all like agreed that this was weird, um he caught and tortured an opossum before setting it on fire while it was still alive.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's, that's good that he's like fr- Exactly. That's like I'm glad his friends were like, uh, this shit is not normal. normal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Also, if they were all on acid, that must have been real fucked up.
0: Dude, can you imagine that'd be such a bad trip?
1: That's the worst trip ever. At age 17, he joined the army and felt competent and useful for the very first time. Unfortunately for him and the world, the army discovered that he had been on probation when he joined up and had lied about it. He later said like he didn't know he was on probation. It was for stealing a car audio system. Mm -hmm. And of course, they discharged him because he had lied to get into the army. This devastated him and it put him on an even worse course of destruction. He ended up moving out of rural Arkansas and to Allentown, Pennsylvania to live with a cousin of his father's. But he definitely changed his location, but did not change himself. He did not feel any peace or happiness. He later said, I was still lost as hell. I had no direction. I had no goals. I had no ambitions, nothing. I wasn't living. I was just existing day to day. In December of 1991, authorities found the corpse of 52-year-old Donald Richard in his Allentown apartment, The older gay hospital employee had been stabbed eight times with a serrated knife. Sitting on the coffee table were two unfinished bottles of beer. Two different sets of prints were discovered on the bottles, one belonging to Richard and the other, presumably the killer. That, paired with the fact that there was no sign of forced entry, led the police to believe that Richard had let his attacker in. Richard's wallet and 1991 Mustang were missing, so the assault could have been financially motivated. After issuing a nationwide alert using the Mustang's plates, 18-year-old Michael Ballard was apprehended driving the car in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Inside the vehicle, they had discovered Richard's wallet as well as a serrated knife stained with his blood. Again, this guy is not good at covering his tracks. I mean, he's pretty, pretty obvious.
0: It doesn't sound like he's good at anything.
1: No, no, he's not. And that's, I think, the thing that he felt like the army was the first place that he felt like he had direction and he could, you know, follow orders and he could actually be successful in something. So when yeah, but they you can't took have that a away record from him, and go,
0: if they didn't take it away from him. He lied.
1: I know. Yeah. And he's a liar because he kept lying. Among other items collected from the car was literature from the KKK.
0: Inclu-
1: yep, including homophobic pamphlets that suggested all gay people should be put to death according to the Bible. Okay. There this was, uh, this guy sucks. Like, just like, every time you're like, oh, he couldn't get worse, he does. He does. There was a treasure trove of physical evidence, including Ballard's matched fingerprints on the beer bottle, but the police didn't end up having to build much of a case. Ballard willingly confessed to the murder. Lost and angry, Michael said he had been turned on to the KKK by a former coworker. After attending a Klan meeting, he decided the group most likely was not for him.
0: Oh, you really you needed to
1: go to a meeting to figure that out? Yeah, <laughs> come on, <laughs> Gross. come on. Um, and he decided not to join, but brought back the propaganda material to his father's cousin, Vera's apartment where he'd been staying. And Vera's daughter was married to a black man. So she was like, okay, F this noise. What is this shit? What are you bringing into my home? I'm not going to have a racist, homophobic POS living under my roof. Yep. And she kicked him out, which good for you, Vera, you know? Shortly thereafter, he met Donald Richard out drinking, and after 90 minutes of shooting the shit, told the older man he needed a place to stay. Richard told Ballard that he owned an apartment complex, and he had a couple vacancies that he could rent to the young man for cheap. They made arrangements to meet at Richard's apartment the next night. Leaving the co-worker's home he had been crashing at, he pocketed a double-edged boot knife with a
0: six-inch blade.
1: He would later say that self-defense wasn't on his mind. He just thought the knife looked cool.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: This is what happened next, according to Fatal Jealousy. When Ballard met up with Richard later that day, Richard invited him into his own apartment before taking him to see the vacancies and then offered Ballard a beer. Ballard accepted and took a seat on Richard's sofa, as he started sipping the beer, however, and this is all according to Ballard, so we don't we don't know if this is true. Of course. Yeah. Um, Richard walked across the room and turned the apartment light off. Richard then took a seat next to Ballard on the sofa and according to Ballard's later recollections, started rubbing his hands against Ballard's chest and crotch. Do you want me to go down on you? Richard asked, according to Ballard. I'll go down on you. Relax. Just relax. Take it easy. I'm not going to hurt you. Ballard told detectives that he had never had another man approach him in such a way. He panicked, just freaked out. He had no idea what to do. The next thing I knew, I saw him laying on the sofa with a knife in his throat, he said. Ballard said he had blacked out and didn't remember stabbing Richard. The knife, the same one Ballard had stolen from his coworker's apartment less than an hour earlier, had been jammed into Donald Richard's throat right up to the handle.
0: Yeah, I don't remember later. pulling the knife. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say it was like later accompanied by like a KKK pamphlet. So it's like.
1: Exactly. But that's the thing he's saying. I was hit on and I freaked out and I didn't even remember I blacked out and did this. But then he has all of this homophobic clan material in his car conveniently. That says that they all need to die. Exactly. Like, hmm. Also, this is happening in 1991. Yeah. So he's preying on people's prejudices by being like, oh, this gay guy came on to me, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Ballard claimed he was terrified. <laughs> Doesn't it make you mad? I'm so yeah.
0: mad. Yeah.
1: Um, Ballard claimed he was terrified at the sight of Richard's dead body at the realization of what he had done in a state of panic, Ballard claimed he pulled the knife out of Richard's throat, then took Richard's wallet and keys and rushed out of the apartment. Oh, in a panic, you stole his car and his wallet. Come on. (laughs) Come on. That's
0: like like when people are like, after taking a shower and cooking food. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I ran out
1: in a panic. I couldn't believe what I had done. So then I sat down, I watched some Netflix, I made some mac and cheese, I took a shower. And then in a panic. Ugh. Unbelievable. (laughs) Oh, my God. Literally, I don't believe him. So it's unbelievable.
0: (laughs) Yeah, good luck trying to get your way out of this one.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he then stole the Mustang. He decided to drive straight to Arkansas, figuring his father would somehow know what to do, which, again, remember, he's 18 years old. He really wasn't thinking about escaping, according to Ballard. That's why he didn't bother getting rid of the knife or think twice about using Richard's credit cards, which he used on his entire road trip and, like, took his girlfriend out to a fancy dinner.
0: SMH. Yeah.
1: So... Ballard denied being in the KKK or that the murder was Klan-inspired or a hate crime, despite the pamphlets found in the stolen vehicle. Of course, he said that. (laughs) Eventually, Michael pled guilty to third-degree murder, meaning he had not had a specific intent to kill. So it would eliminate the possibility of life behind bars. And prosecutors said that they made the deal due to Ballard's young age and Richard's family's willingness to accept those terms. And it just seems like likely to me that, again, we're in 1991. They don't want to do a hate crime big trial. And I bet that Richard's family didn't want like, you know, his character assassinated here by like, if they went to trial, he obviously would have used the defense that the guy came on to him, you know? Yeah. So that's why I think the prosecutors and the family just were like, Let's plead this out, you know? Ugh. So he was sentenced to a minimum of 15 years and a max of 30 years, which, especially seeing as he re offends later, seems like not enough.
0: So, when did he get out? What year was that? So, he
1: got out in 2006. As the conclusion of his 15 year minimum sentence approached, Ballard was first granted parole by the Pennsylvania Board of Probation and Parole on September 18, 2006. In its notice to Ballard about its decision, the board cited several factors that led to its ruling, including Ballard having expressed remorse for his crimes he committed, which is such a big thing that we've talked about a million I know, times. I know, if you express, like you say, "I did it," you admit to it, you express remorse for it, it's going to get you out of jail a hundred times you know, more than the dumb bitches that we've had sometimes that are just keep denying, denying. Yeah, you know? but obviously
0: he doesn't mean it because he just went and fucking did it again.
1: Yeah, he's a liar. This guy's yeah. a liar, 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 pants on fire. As well as a positive recommendation by the State Department of Corrections and Ballard's completion of institutional programs, as well as a review of all of his mental health reports and behavioral evaluations. Also among the factors that went into Ballard's release was the inmate job that he had held for two years as a hospice unit for elderly prisoners. Although all inmates were required to have a job within the prison, this particular one was among the toughest and most unpopular. Ballard had volunteered for it, similar to a nursing home profession outside a prison. It, of course, involved interacting with the elderly and sick, writing requests on their behalf, serving them meals, and cleaning up after them, Ballard received average work reports, demonstrated no problems during his time with the patients, and he spoke regularly to counselors throughout his two years on the job. So I guess that the people who worked at the prison were like, he seems rehabilitated. He's been doing this, like, job that nobody wants for so long. He seems like a good guy. So even though Donald Richards' sisters strongly opposed Ballard's release, their objections fell on deaf ears. And Michael Eric was released to a halfway house on November 27, 2006, and then officially paroled to the public on March 1st, 2007. So troopers met with Denise's best friend, Marilyn Rivera, to determine the nature and history of her tumultuous relationship with Michael Ballard. Marilyn and Denise had become fast friends six years earlier when they met at an amusement park with their kids. All of whom were just about the same age. They exchanged numbers and quickly became inseparable. Marilyn described Denise as friendly, bubbly, and as a woman who loved everyone. She had a strong, outgoing, and even sometimes domineering personality, but she carried it with a confidence that proved she didn't care what others thought or said about her, which was very attractive. Like she was just kind of a tell it as it is type, you know?
0: I, I feel like that like comes with the name Denise.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's so true. I feel like that's so true. Every Denise I know is like really personable, but like, don't fuck with them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like I just tell it like it is. I spit the truth. Yeah, exactly.
1: So <laughs> that is a really valid point. If you guys are denises yeah, like- out there, shout out for you. <laughs>
0: um,
1: so yeah. So by the time that Marilyn met Denise those six years earlier, she was kind of in a rough situation and a mental state, she had recently left a cheating ex-husband in Puerto Rico who was the father of her kids and was putting her life back together in Northampton where her family lived. Denise also suffered from bipolar disorder and frequently refused to take her medication. Marilyn was first introduced to Denise's new love interest, Michael Ballard, fresh from prison in early summer of 2007. Denise had actually met him the very same month of his release in March. Yeah. And this guy, think about it. You heard about his childhood and then he went to prison at 18. And he just got out. And he just got out. Yeah. So he has had no time to adjust. And he's never had a normal relationship, a a girlfriend. He's never – experienced life on the outside really at all. Yeah. So she had been working as a medical assistant at a doctor's office where Ballard was attending a physical exam. And after the doctor left the room, Ballard had surprisingly just opened up to her and spilled his guts to the pretty brunette telling her like practically everything about his past. Like he even told her about the murder, like straight up on, on their first time talking And for some reason, his openness and honesty and sensitivity was very appealing to her as somebody who had just left a cheater and a liar.
0: And And, she's a caretaker if she's a medical assistant. Yep. She's a
1: caretaker. She's like a single mother. And her friends did say that um, she did have like kind of like a thing for bad boys a little bit. Like there was something exciting about him, you know? Okay. Within weeks of their first meeting, Denise left her fiance and kicked him and his children out of the home they had shared. Brian, the fiance, was a nice 37-year-old IT specialist who was devastated by Denise's change of heart. So She left like this totally solid, nice single father with a great job for this, Murderous even, psychopath. Murderous psychopath who just got out of prison. Yikes. Uh huh. So, according to McAvoy and Olenoff, Marilyn claimed that Denise sugarcoated Ballard's crimes, that or Ballard sugarcoated them himself when he had described them to Denise. Marilyn couldn't be sure which. First, Denise claimed that Ballard had killed someone else in self defense. Later, she admitted it wasn't in self-defense at all and that he had killed a gay man after he made an advance. Ballard was from the South, Denise had explained. They just weren't used to homosexuals and he just didn't know how to respond, so he went a little crazy. Stop. She totally gave him a pass. Stop. When she told me what he did, I was like, you're going out with him, Marilyn said. Nevertheless, Marilyn grew to like Ballard. He had a steady job and a truck. And most important, he treated Denise like a queen. No. No. Just no. No. He hate crime killed somebody. You can't just gloss over that because the guy has a job and a truck and is nice to you. And because he's from the South? From the South. That's not an excuse
0: whoa guys come on
1: oof for ballard denise marked the first real meaningful relationship in his life and he of course loved the idea of having a doting girlfriend after 15 years in prison ballard came to love having the constant attention of a woman it was like a drug to him a drug he was growing quickly addicted to Denise would speak about not only their strong emotional connection, but their physical one as well, according to Marilyn. Whenever Ballard called Denise's cell phone, the ringtone that played was the Kings of Leon rock song, Sex on Fire. Oh. I just grew up
0: in my mouth.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's terrible. Denise even gave Ballard a nickname because of his sexual prowess, Superman. God, this is like, not only bad, it's not original.
0: No, it's like a PSA for like.
1: Codependent bad relationships. Yeah.
0: Like everything.
1: Yeah, everything. (laughs) Just everything. List it all? (laughs) Marilyn explained that once Ballard was released from the halfway house, he started renting an Allentown house on Hall Street, but he spent almost all of his time and kept most of his things at Denise's house in Northampton. Ballard, Denise, and Marilyn would often have dinner together, play cards, or just hang at one another's homes. Ballard seemed to truly love Denise's kids. He spoiled them with gifts, helped them with their homework, tucked them into bed at night, and played the dad role at their birthday parties. I liked Michael. I'm not going to lie, Marilyn said. Under the terms of his parole, Ballard had to take regular anger management courses from an organization called Forensic Treatment Services. Ballard hated the FTS counselors and clashed with them from the very beginning. He felt that they were out to get him and just looking for an excuse to throw him back in prison. The counselors, for their part, believed Ballard was antisocial, did not value other people's feelings, and had entitlement issues and no boundaries whatsoever. You think? They particularly disapproved of Ballard's relationship with Denise, especially because she was engaged to another man when they first started seeing each other.
0: In September of So messy.
1: Yeah, this is messy af over here. Eventually, Ballard moved in with Denise and her family, but hid it from FTS by keeping the Hall Street House as his official parole address. Marilyn could not shady. recall a, it's really shady. So Marilyn could not recall a time when Michael was ever violent or threatening with Denise, but she did claim that the couple had intense jealousy issues and fought constantly occasionally with Denise attacking Michael by hitting him, jumping on him, or scratching him. And Marilyn chalked this erratic behavior up to her a untreated bipolar, but also her prior history. Of a cheating spouse, which made her kind of paranoid and and worried about men, you know? Yeah. Despite the altercations, the two were desperately in love and even held a mock wedding ceremony where they pledged their love to one another and exchanged rings.
0: What? Why, is, why mock? Can I because
1: not Denise told Marilyn that the FTS would have prevented a legal wedding. So this would be like the next best thing that they could because- they would have been notified if he got married, which I didn't know that like a parole board or or some services could prevent you from getting married, but I guess they could have, or they it would have looked badly on his parole situation if he did or something. Huh. At least that's what she said. So she said that this was the next best thing that they considered themselves spiritually married for all intents and purposes. And they began to refer to each other as husband and wife however this is when everything changed according to fatal jealousy the relationship between Ballard and Denise drastically changed when Ballard was accused of sexually assaulting a minor marilyn said
0: oh, J- oh like my just
1: God. when you think this guy cannot get worse here he goes
0: wow the You knock North- out for that too
1: Oh, God, this makes my skin crawl. The Northampton Police Department investigated the allegations and questioned the juvenile girl, who was known to both Denise and Marilyn. Marilyn said they tested the bedsheets where the assault had allegedly taken place. For a time, the trust both Denise and Marilyn felt towards Ballard was shattered, and neither would let him anywhere near their children. I would hope so. Oh, my God. However, according to Northampton Police Chief Ronald Morey, the alleged victim was unable to specifically articulate exactly what had happened to her. She's a child. She's a minor. The tests on the sheets turned up nothing according to Marilyn, who began to have her own doubts as to Ballard's guilt.
0: Okay, if a what child do you mean, according to Marilyn, was she what do you mean she was the one testing the sheets?
1: Yeah, she wasn't she wasn't involved in this shit. She's like just saying what she thinks to the police. Ultimately, the police found there wasn't enough evidence to press charges against Ballard and soon both Denise and Marilyn felt comfortable being around him again. Big mistake. But by April 2008, Michael Ballard was back in prison on a parole violation. The official reason given was that Ballard had failed to attend forensic treatment services required anger management classes and was not amenable to treatment. Ballard, Denise, and Marilyn each vehemently believed the sexual assault allegations were the real reason for his re-imprisonment, as well as the fact that Ballard had continued dating Denise behind the counselor's backs. It was a very difficult time for Ballard. Oh, poor baby. He felt he had attained everything he wanted, stability, a family, a normal life, only to have it taken away and be back in prison on charges he insisted were fake.
0: Okay, you're a psychopath.
1: Yeah, this is, he's like, everything's been taken away from me. So you're right. Like I was feeling kind of bad about the army stuff, but like this is again, he is doing this to himself and he's blaming somebody else.
0: Yeah, which ultimately, I mean, listen, his he really, his brain is fucked up from all that acid. Like yep. you said that he did a hundred tabs when a he was A hundred
1: like- hits while he was in high school.
0: Yeah, like, come on. In
1: September of 2008, Ballard tried to hang himself with a bedsheet, but was discovered and revived. At Ugh. first, Denise remained devoted to her jailbird lover- She sent letters professing her love and loyalty as well as scrapbooks full of memories of happier times. But eventually her devotion waned and Denise began seeing other people as one does. This is nothing, this is not bad. Of course she should be seeing other people. Yeah. She even once again became engaged to Brian Miller, the fiance she had dumped for Ballard. Oh, Brian, baby. Brian, this is this is not a good situation for you either. Brian and Denise moved back in together and began to make plans to marry in August of 2010. Meanwhile, she continued to write to Ballard as if nothing had changed. So he doesn't know that she's engaged. Oh, God. In December 2009, after serving about a year and a half in prison, Ballard gleefully informed Denise that he had made parole and would be released in April of the next year. Denise, by now, realized that with the new timeline, she could no longer keep her engagement to Brian a secret and reluctantly informed Ballard via a letter of her new relationship and plans to wed another man. Of course, you can imagine how he took this. He was shocked, furious, hurt, and felt abandoned. And about to go on a murderous rampage. And about to go on a murderous rampage. (laughs) (sighs) Preparing (sighs) for release, Ballard's father, cousin, and parole officer all begged him to cut off contact with Denise altogether. And initially, Ballard did refuse to communicate with her while he was still in prison. He wouldn't respond to her letters. He would not let her visit. However, within one day of Michael's release in April of 2010, Denise broke up with poor Brian again, and the tumultuous couple were back together. This is just, they can't get enough of each other and it's toxic and terrible. The honeymoon was short-lived as both parties no longer trusted one another. Ballard was furious with Denise for getting engaged behind his back and Denise was still leery about the sexual assault charges that had been brought against him. Ballard was also still living in a halfway house with a strict curfew and he wasn't supposed to be seeing Denise at all. So the lies and secrecy and inopportune scheduling began to wear on the couple. Denise continued to play the field, but kept getting sucked back into Michael's orbit. When Denise took her kids to the Jersey Shore, the two were still in close contact. Later on, the police would recover 86 text messages Denise sent to Ballard in the five days leading up to the murders.
0: Oh, God.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess that's not that
0: much. How many – did we ever figure out how many we send to each other a day? No, but it's a lot.
1: It's definitely more than 86 in five days. Yeah. (laughs) If if one of us got murdered, the police would definitely want to talk to the other one. For
0: sure. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So leading up to the murder, they discussed money needed for ongoing, like, legal and parole issues, money that Denise said she could not spare him, And also, somewhat shockingly, they were discussing Denise getting pregnant with Ballard's baby, which is a really bad idea. She revealed that she had removed her Marina IUD, which is a birth control device, a month earlier with the intent to get pregnant. Ballard was overjoyed at the thought. I love you for all the right reasons, he wrote, and I'm glad to know you feel the true love you have for me again. You make me feel like I really am Superman. Ugh. So from also, Fatal is jealousy, it Superman
0: when you like actually like come on a woman's back and then like the sheet gets stuck to her. What? That's like what Supermaning that? Oh, yes. Stop it!
1: You're gonna me. What are you talking about? Oh my God!
0: You've never heard that.
1: I have. Never heard that. I am apparently much more innocent than you, Andrea.
0: That's not true. Oh, that's um, not true. <laughs> that <laughs> is a lie. That is a bold-faced yeah, lie. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that Superman in like a sexual context is when <laughs> a man ejaculates on a woman's back, and then the sheet gets stuck to her, and then you shove her off the bed, and she flies like Superman.
1: Okay. I like that you started that one out like so professionally. In a sexual <laughs> contest. It's when a man ejaculates.
0: <laughs> Superman that hoe.
1: Okay, Professor Cassette, moving on. <laughs> okay, so here's a few of their text messages. And there was so many. So if you guys are interested in <sighs> deeper understanding of this case, I would highly recommend reading Fatal Jealousy by McAvoy and all in off. I'm going to try to condense some of these text messages but they do paint a succinct picture of this relationship that is bizarre and very adolescent for two people who are he's like in his late 30s she's almost 40 you know the text began the next morning when denise and ballard continued their conversations about one day having a baby together i can't wait to feel this baby growing inside me having a part of you. God, I love you so much, Michael, Denise wrote at 11.37 a.m. Ballard appeared equally excited. We're really going to have a baby, he wrote at 11.50. I mean, try to anyway. I'm so nervous, overjoyed, but still nervous. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God be with us through this, I pray. Oh, but, yeah. They're on that tip. Uh, they're on that tip too. <sighs> but they're happy plans. We're not without some anxiety. Just three minutes later, Denise texted that she feared what others would think if she and Ballard had a baby. I'm so fucking stoked, she wrote at 11.53 a.m., but scared as hell. What the hell do I tell people? I mean, seriously. Wow, Ballard replied at 12.05. Um, well, let's just become pregnant first, okay? Then we'll look at the people who we can be honest with and make decisions then, okay? But Denise was not so easily calmed. Well, I can't tell my mom or kids or even my dad. She wrote at 1215. I'm going to look like a fucking whore. Ballard's message at twelve. Yeah. Ballard's message at 1225 was the last in the conversation. No, you won't look like a whore, he wrote. When some small portions of the text messages were later read in court, this particular line struck a chord with many newspaper readers. They were reminded of the message written in blood on Denise's wall later. Denise is a whore.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Ballard's text message continued. And you know, you can tell your dad. And as far as the kids are concerned, the talk we were having last night needs to take place between you and her. Tristan, you can tell and slow your mind down. That's what's making your head hurt. So basically she went on to talk about how she wasn't sure. Like she wanted to have a baby with him, but she didn't know if she wanted to like rush into marriage and, He was getting very antsy about the fact that she had been with other men while he was away. And so even though as they're kind of talking about this like thing that they're looking forward to, maybe making a child together, um, he's still like, but you'll never be with other guys, right? You won't try to replace me again. Don't you know that I love you more than anyone else in the world? Like, why would you try to do that? And she's like, she just was, Yeah, he's psycho. And so she's like, no, I love you, honey. Like, that's not going to happen. I don't want to be with anyone else. So she's, like, really trying to calm him down a lot in these messages as well. And he's also, um, you know, implying that he wants to be a greater part of her life. And, like, because of the parole situation and because, like, she's not, like, you know, flaunting their relationship and saying she'll marry him, uh, that he can't be, a like, he can't really be her husband and, like, the father of her kids. Like, he's not at the shore with her because he can't because he has to live in a halfway house, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: over the next couple days, again, Denise suggested she didn't want to rush into marriage and that they'd continue to talk about it. And he was getting more and more obsessed with the idea of her being with other men. Growing agitated, Ballard called Marilyn while she was at the shore to complain about Denise's spotty responses and his fears about her seeing other men. So this is all, like, within days of the murders. Okay. He began grilling Marilyn about Denise's Facebook pictures, demanding to know who each man who commented or liked her, like, posts were.
0: People get so wrapped up about social media. It's it's crazy,
1: scary, especially yeah, when it's it like, "Who's scary. this guy?"
0: And it's like, "It's like my cousin
1: or something," you know?
0: Yeah, or like, like someone I work with, or uh-huh. like, yeah, it's not okay.
1: So he was like going through with a fine tooth comb and like picked out a list of names and was like firing at Marilyn. Who's this guy? Who's that guy? And so Marilyn was like, I guess, in a kind of a fight with Denise at this point about something. And I don't know if this was unintentional or she like just didn't care at this point, but she like accidentally let it slip that Denise had attended a Phillies game with a man that she had met on the dating site, Plenty of Fish.
0: Why? 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 Don't
1: do that to your girl. Don't do it. Um. So, of course, Michael became incensed. He then begged Marilyn to meet him for coffee the next morning so that they could continue to talk about it. And at this point, she was like, oh, I fucked up. This is, like, scary. I didn't mean to reveal this to him. He's, like, losing his mind. So she, like, to get off the phone, agreed to meet him, but her gut instinct was like, "This is a bad idea. Something bad is going to happen. I'm not going to get together with him." Ugh. So the next day, he called her like five times in a row, and on the final call, she ended up picking him, picking the phone up, but was like, "Hey, I, I can't come." She like made up some some excuse about why she couldn't meet with him. And later that same day is when Michael Ballard slaughtered Denise, her father, her grandfather, and her heroic neighbor. Marilyn realized while talking to the police how close she was to being killed herself. I do believe in my heart that he would have used me to get to Denise's house because remember he didn't have a car Mm -hmm. and he would have just killed us both, she later said, which is entirely true. He would have definitely killed the messenger as well. Yeah. And I mean, I honestly, I think that Marilyn screwed up by telling him that, but I think he would have killed Denise anyway. (sighs)
0: So scary.
1: It's really, really terrifying. After obsessively calling both Denise and Marilyn that morning, Ballard checked out of the halfway house around 1148 AM and troopers traced surveillance footage from several establishments to recreate his movements. As a bizarre and morbid tribute to Denise, Ballard wore a Superman t-shirt he later left at the crime scene.
0: So he knew exactly what he was doing. He
1: knew what he was doing when he left the. So I don't family. even have
0: the drug sympathy for him anymore.
1: No, this was entirely premeditated. Yeah. Though wearing the suit, like he's a very basic looking white guy. And I think honestly, the oh, Superman. Oh, that's
0: shocking. Michael Eric Ballard, <laughs> the KKK member.
1: The KKK member and also like most multi-murderers are white men in their late 30s. (laughs) Like overwhelming amount of white men in their late 30s have (laughs) rage for some reason. They've had such a
0: hard life.
1: Oh, it's so hard for them. I know. Got a stabby stab. I can't help it.
0: <laughs> Gotta savvy, savvy, stab be a racist piece of shit.
1: Yeah, my life was hard. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, even though he wore the stupid fucking shirt, it actually made everybody remember him because it's an iconic logo, you know? So, yeah, like, that was
0: weirdo in the Superman shirt. Yes. Full exactly. of blood.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, everybody, mm-hmm. like all throughout his day, now we're going to go through what he did before the murders. Um, all throughout the day, everybody was like, yeah, the weirdo in the Superman shirt. <sighs> so Ballard stopped at two pawn shops, finally selecting a Ruco Muella or Muella brand knife that would become the murder weapon. So he's like buying the murder weapon. He knows yeah. exactly what he's doing. He then placed a few calls from a 7-Eleven payphone, which were later revealed to be Marilyn. After purchasing a bus ticket to Northampton, where Denise's house was, he stopped at Boxer's Bar and Grill, where he drank. Guess what he drank before he murdered. PBR.
0: No, it's worse. A Long Island iced tea. Stop. Stop. Ew, he drank Long Island iced tea?
1: Yep. He drank a Long Island iced tea. And then after taking the bus closer to Denise's, he stopped at another restaurant and he drank some more. At one point he asked Denise's neighbors if he could cut through their yard to reach the alley, and they agreed, but then the letter said that it made them feel uncomfortable because it, it was clear once he was in their yard um that he wasn't just passing through to get to the alley like he said. He was like trying to look into Denise's house and into her
0: yard. Yeah. Could you, oh my God, I'd feel so bad if I were those neighbors.
1: Ugh, guilty forever. Guilty so bad, yeah. Around 2 p.m., just hours before the murders, Ballard went to a local liquor store and purchased a two and a quarter pint of vodka. After that, he stopped at another bar and had another Long Island iced tea before mixing the vodka with Mountain Dew and drinking down the whole ungodly concoction.
0: It's disgusting.
1: Oh, so six hours after the he got to the hospital. So like after the accident. So this is all happening. He managed to dispatch the entire family plus the neighbor, then get in the car, then get into an accident, then get in, go to the hospital, and then six hours after that, he still had a 0.113 blood alcohol content. Holy shit! Yeah. So he was banged the f up right now oh a check of phone records reveal around this time ballard called denise's cell phone twice the calls lasted three and a half and five minutes but no one knows to this day what they said to one another shortly after that ballard entered denise's home and systematically extinguished the lives of all of those who inhabited it and then attacks Steve when he oh my tried God. to what stop about him.
0: Denise's kids?
1: I mean, it's terrible. Those poor kids. Their dad is in Puerto Rico. I guess that after the murders, the dad tried to, like, get custody back. But um, the grandmother was like, no, because the kids, like, loved their house. They loved their school. They didn't want to, you know, move. Yeah. So to this day, the grandmother has custody, which I think is good. Oh, God devastating but yeah they're they're basically orphans while the troopers were putting together the pieces of the tragic day michael ballard woke up in the hospital and casually confessed the murders to a doctor so he said something to this doctor dr costello like that he was like he the dr costello was basically like do you know what happened to you and he's like yeah i was stabbing some dude and the knife slipped down and cut my knee. And Dr. Costello was like, Um, okay, that's really weird that he just like confessed to me. So the next he made sure like to have a nurse with him present the next time he went in the room, just in case he would have another witness to his confession, you know? Yeah. So now with a nurse present, Costello performed an examination on the patient and started to ask basic questions, including whether Ballard knew why he was in the hospital. Ballard's response was just as frank and shocking as a few hours earlier. He said, "'Because I murdered my girlfriend and her family and then the neighbor who came over later,' he replied, matter-of-factly. "'I was in the process of stabbing them when the knife slipped and I stabbed my knee.'" Costello asked a few more questions and Ballard seemed better able to articulate how he'd sustained his injuries now than he had before— it was clear to the doctor that Ballard's alertness and levels of consciousness had greatly improved. Costello and the nurse who had been present with him both made written statements to the police about the confession.
0: Yeah, I mean, but he already confessed to the police anyway. Right?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's no shot that this guy is getting away with this, obviously. No. There was... Little question about whether or not he was innocent. So Ballard was arrested for all four of the brutal murders and transferred to prison as soon as he was considered stable. The press went crazy for the case, making much hay of the fact that Ballard had been a repeat murderer, now a killer of five who had been recently paroled. So they, they really like do a good job in the book talking about different parole laws and like why this happened and a big part of it nationally, not just in Pennsylvania, was because of the war on drugs and overcrowding in prisons. Yeah. And that parole boards are just overwhelmed with the amount of people that are in these prisons. And if they didn't have to deal with people who had bullshit marijuana charges, maybe they could focus on keeping violent offenders in. Instead, there's overcrowding and they're just letting people out who shouldn't be out. Yep. Yeah, so they do a really, they, I mean, they break it down. Because like he's this, white. Yeah, also he's white. And he was so young when it happened. It's like they don't care about how young uh, a young African-American guy on a marijuana charges. Nope. So Disgusting. they do a, a really good job in the book. So again, guys, fatal jealousy. They break it down like this full chapter about the history of all of this stuff. So cool. Yeah, they did a really great job. Yeah. So the of course the press is like all over this. And at a press conference, uh the district attorney John Morganelli decided that he was going to push for the death penalty and told, you know, the press and the greater public. And he said, quote, this guy's a rabid dog and he needs to be put down. Touche. Touche. At an initial hearing, he also made it clear that he would not offer life in prison in exchange for a a guilty plea, as is customary in some murder cases. Like a lot of times they like want to avoid uh, like a costly trial. So they're like, if you plead guilty, you'll just get life in prison and we'll take the the death penalty off. But he's like, nope, not this one. You've killed five people. Not this time. We are sending you to the lethal injection table, sir several hearings would be held over the next several months to establish the case as a death penalty case and prepare for trial. Okay, you're going to lose your mind here. This is going to make you crazy, Andy. Present at all of the various hearings was a 27-year-old woman named Danielle Kaufman, a married mother of a three-year-old who had been writing letters to prisoners since she was 15 years old, but had developed a special relationship with Ballard after seeing him on the news. To reiterate, seeing him on the news because he killed four people.
0: That's some like Ted Bundy shit.
1: Oh, yeah. She saw him on the news and she's like, oh my God, who's that guy? What? (sighs) We have to do like a special episode at some point of these crazy women who go for these guys and psychologically what's going on there because it's it's bananas. So here's what this nut job said to McAvoy and, All and off in Fatal Jealousy. It takes a degree of insanity to do what I do, I guess, but I'll be the first to admit I'm nuts, Danielle said with a laugh in a later interview. I love these fellas, and I really believe that no matter how damaged a human might be, if they have someone standing behind them, they can change for the better. I'll never stop reaching out to the fellas. And I don't give a shit if society ever understands why or not.
0: What does she think? She's like some mob wife in the 1920s. Like, why is she using fellas so much? I don't know. I don't know. I Like do not- what?
1: <laughs> the more I tell you about this woman, the more your brain is going to explode. Despite, so there's more? Oh, there's more. Despite <laughs> having written to several killers, Danielle claimed she was not drawn specifically to murderers. She said that she like- She said looked, she's an equal opportunist. <laughs> she said that she would look at mug shots and whatever face attracted her, that was who she would write to. And somehow they all ended up being murderers. I can't help that the faces I seem to like to talk to are murderers or something, she said. It's not like I dig the murderers. I would have talked to Michael even if he was in like for tax fraud or something.
0: Oh my god.
1: I don't actually know what her voice sounds like, but this is what it sounded like in my head. <laughs> Danielle claimed it was also a common misconception that she was in love with the people she wrote to. Although married for five years to the father of her child, Danielle claimed the marriage was more of a friendship than a romantic relationship. Nevertheless, she insisted her letters to inmates were strictly platonic. Danielle said that she had never developed any major romantic feelings for any of the men she wrote to, except for Michael Ballard. Danielle didn't write to Ballard until late July, about a month after his arrest, because it took time before his information was registered in the prison system. So she was waiting for him to get processed so she could write to him.
0: I hope the father of her child and the child ran away.
1: I hope so too, desperately. To
0: her excitement, he
1: wrote back right away. Ballard claimed he had received lots of letters in prison, but most of them were from religious people who wanted to save him. He did not bother writing back to most of them, but told Danielle he had picked her letters out from all the others to respond to and made her feel extremely special. Soon, they were exchanging letters on a regular basis, and she was accepting collect calls from him in prison, and by September, she was visiting him whenever she possibly could. She came to see him about a dozen times as often as she was allowed. She said she found him to be funny, charming, and very intelligent. Contrary to the public opinion that was rapidly forming about him, she never believed him to be crazy or evil. He was, however, very intense, which was something Danielle found appealing. His moods shifted drastically and very quickly. One moment he'd be calm and mellow, the next angry and animated. The same would occur in his letters and Danielle quickly found his handwriting would actually differ depending on his mood. If it turned out he had multiple personalities, Danielle thought, I wouldn't be surprised. Wow. Yep. So the Northampton County prison guards start start to refer to Danielle as his girlfriend and they both seem to like this. In fact, he even started to refer to Danielle as his wife. Just like he did with Denise, even though they weren't married. And even though she's actually married to another man. Whoa. They talked freely about harboring feelings of love for each other. And grossly, their letters turned sexual as well. She affectionately referred to Ballard as blue. And he told her he wanted her to get Michael tattooed on her forearm. Jesse. I I can't. I mean, can you even? No. Ugh. This bitch. <laughs> so it's been kind of like funny so far, almost like how terrible she is, how terrible he is, how gross this whole relationship is. However, it's about to get real dark. So prepare yourself. Oh God. Yep. Danielle even let her three-year-old daughter speak to Ballard during some. Oh my God. Of their no, it's a daughter. Calls. Uh Oh,
0: no, I don't know why I assumed it was a son. Nope. I think I was just hoping. It's a daughter, and it gets even worse.
1: Katrina, the daughter, spoke to Michael often. She would tell him she missed him. And Ballard referred to her as little cat. And this becomes grosser because of what Ballard completely admits to Danielle later. He admits to committing the murders, of course. Um, he spoke candidly and in vivid detail about his crimes from early on in their relationship. At one point, he told Danielle that he had killed Denise to save her from herself. According to Danielle, Ballard told her that Denise was becoming so promiscuous, he had to kill her to ensure she would get into heaven before she got worse. Once, he went so far as to draw a picture of the crime scene. It was a sketch of Ballard standing in Denise's kitchen, standing over her dead body. A bloody knife clutched in his hands. He even had pricked his finger and let his blood drops fall over the drawing to illustrate all the blood after he stabbed her. What? Yep. And this bitch is just keeping it all and writing back to him and flirting and like sending sexy letters to him. Oh, it gets worse. The drawing was so vivid in its details that he had sketched a candle that sat in the kitchen windowsill the day of the murder, complete with the label of exactly what the scent
0: was. Was it a Yankee candle? Coat? It has
1: to be, right? It has to be either a Yankee candle or a ripoff, which don't do my, my company Yankee candle like that. You know, I love those Yankee candles. <laughs> so yeah, Danielle knew that he knew exactly what he was doing, that this wasn't yep. a fit of rage. That he was, like, now, like, really enjoying reliving this. And some letters were even more disturbing. In one, Ballard told Danielle. Oh, it is disturbing. (laughs) In one letter, he told Danielle that he had indeed molested the girl that he had been accused of sexually assaulting during that time he had been out on parole. Ballard even went so far as to claim in his letters that not only had he molested the little girl, but the girl's mother was aware of it and was present when it happened. Danielle did not believe that this was the truth. Why are you not believing this? Because he's telling you it. Believe him. In one of Ballard's drawings to Danielle, he depicted himself sitting alongside the girl who was naked, except that in his drawing, she was depicted as a teenager much older than she had been in real life.
0: How old was she in real life?
1: They don't say. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. They just make sure, like, make it known that she's much younger than a teenager, which sounds really effing bad. Horrible. In a different drawing, Ballard drew an image of Denise's daughter, Annika, with the words, should have raped her, who had just turned 10. Yeah.
0: Oh, my God. This guy needs to die now.
1: Oh, yeah. He needs to die. These drawings and Ballard's claims that he had sexually assaulted a little girl were the only ones from their many letters that disturbed Danielle, since the dumbass had a daughter of her own. But they did nothing to dampen her romantic feelings for him, nor did they make her consider ending their correspondence. The two went oh, on to exchange.
0: Oh my God. Hundreds of letters. Oh my God. Is your brain oh
1: broken? Your brain is broken, right? That's why I was just hitting it. <laughs> what? What broken? Yes. You have a he's writing you these letters talking about how he should have raped a just newly turned daughter, 10-year-old. Yeah. And that he did sexually assault a child. And you're like, here, get on the phone with my three-year-old. Uh also, like, these, these women that like these guys can do whatever they want for themselves if that's what they want to do. I don't think it's safe or I don't think it's good or healthy. But when you involve Especially if your, you have a little daughter. But when you involve your children, come the fuck on. Come on.
0: Yeah. It's like, do whatever the fuck you want on your own. But, like, do not wrap your kid into this psychopathic baby rapist murderer.
1: Oh, I just got chills. It's so terrible. It's so terrible.
0: Ugh, I'm nauseous.
1: You should be. You also might be in labor. Who knows? It's a sign. (laughs) Guys, I was a week late for Alden and I was over it. So I took a midwife's brew of castor oil, lemon verbena tea, almond butter. And apricot nectar. Yes. That was the brew. So I I kind of did a a homeopathic inducement induction myself. Yeah. So – hopefully nobody goes into labor while we're talking about this part because it's gross and it makes me truly sick as I know it makes you sick. So yeah. luckily the state troopers got wind of this <sighs> relationship and they convinced Danielle to turn over How? all of Ballard's letters because she was going to the jail to see him. Oh, so of God. course they knew that something was going on. And so they went to her and they were like, You seem like a sweet girl, but this is not a good look for you. And you shouldn't be doing this. And she's like, whatever, I'm going to do me, you know? And this is is my reenactment of what's going on. I do what I want. I do what I want. Catch me outside. How about that? (laughs) That's how I imagine her. I don't actually know. I couldn't find what she actually looks like. I, I Googled it. Believe me, I tried. But yeah, so basically they did talk to her and she's like, yeah, you know, like a couple of his letters are a little weird. And they were like, "Do you have them?" And she's like, "Oh, <laughs> hold on, let me take out this binder." And she had something she called the Book of Michael, and she like kept all of his letters like in a binder. Yeah. So thankfully, though, she's not a total idiot because she handed over the whole binder to the police. So she gave them like a shite ton of evidence. Obviously, so you know
0: she felt well, bad. I mean, if she's she. Did she know that it was going to get him in trouble?
1: So her her opinion about it was that she felt bad about potentially betraying him, but she didn't want to get in trouble herself, like for not cooperating or holding back evidence, you know? And her, she she felt like he had readily admitted to the murders and he had like told her that he confessed. So she's like, they're not going to find anything like in the letters that's new news for them, even though they did.
0: Oh, my God! yeah, so
1: despite her dizzying logic, she somehow managed to do the right thing at the end of the day um, and of course, then his lawyers find out that his girlfriend just handed over all this stuff where he's like, "I should have raped babies, oh, and I did rape a baby, and also, ha ha, here's my blood on a letter of the crime scene, and she's like, "That's nothing they don't know. It's like, what so her his attorneys are like ape shit, they're like. What are you doing? Why are you sending this shit to this girl who just handed it over to the state troopers? Oh, my God. Yeah. So it's like it sounds like when I first started the story, you're like, oh, who's this wackadoodle just writing to him? And it's like, no, she turned over some very significant evidence at the end. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, So even though ballard's lawyers begged him to stop seeing danielle and exchanging letters he defied them and he eventually like after only a couple weeks of not talking to her totally picked up the romance once more <laughs> and after the two reconnected danielle arranged to visit ballard in prison but the prison canceled the visit last minute like she was already there and they wouldn't let ballard see her and ballard went absolutely batshit crazy. So I read about this in, in the book and I'm literally going to just read the passage to you because I could not do it justice if I tried to reiterate it for you. This no, is, I think
0: it's, I, it's great when you pick certain ones to so just read.
1: Yeah, this one I'm just reading because it, it gets you an idea of how this guy's mind works and it is astounding. Okay, so he's been told that he can't see his crazy lover, and he gets really pissed about it. So, fine, Ballard thought. If you're not going to abide by your end of the bargain, I'm not going to abide by mine. Let's have a party. Ballard grabbed a pencil and one of the pieces of paper he usually used for his drawings. After a few seconds of furious scribbling, Ballard attached some of his toothpaste to the edges of the paper, then stuck it to the wall right outside his cell. The makeshift sign read, Costume Party, Bring a Friend, Fun for All, Have a Riot. After that, Ballard wet one of his towels in the sink and shoved it against the lower crack of his cell door. He knew that, for what he was about to do, the prison staff would try to pump pepper spray into the cell. Ballard then lifted one of the two mattresses in his cell and shoved it against the door, essentially barricading himself inside. The corrections officers ordered Ballard to remove the mattress, but he refused. There was no other points where the guards could engage Ballard besides the entrance, as solid concrete walls encased the rest of his isolation cell. He then clogged the sink and toilet drains with the rest of his towels then left the water running and kept running the sink and flushing the toilet until the cell was flooded with about two inches of water. As the guards, it's real gross, continued to knock on the door outside and ordered Ballard to remove the mattress, he picked up his toothpaste tube and squeezed it into his mouth, hoping that when the guards finally did break in, He could spit the paste into their faces and temporarily blind one or two of them. By now, the prison was placed on lockdown, which meant inmates had to be kept in their cells and non-essential movement was strictly prohibited. The water was shut off once the guards realized Ballard was flooding his cell. Then they called in the prison's corrections emergency response team to perform what they called a cell extraction half a dozen cert members got into position outside of the cell door but Ballard was ready for them after the warnings shouted by inmates in the surrounding cells mike there's six of them out here one inmate yelled one's got a battering ram as if on just a battering ram they got they got more you'll see okay The guard with the battering ram started shoving the heavy instrument against the door. Ballard pressed his arms against the mattress and the battering ram only succeeded in pushing the mattress out slightly before Ballard pressed it back up against the door. After 10 or 15 attempts at this, Ballard rolled his eyes. Are you guys bored with this yet? He thought because I already am. The shouts from the inmates continued, most of which Ballard had tuned out, except for one particularly startling warning. They've got a shotgun, an inmate shouted. Ballard's eyes widened. What? By now, the guards outside had cracked the door slightly and indeed what appeared to be the long barrel of a shotgun came through the cell door. With the mattress still blocking the entranceway, the guards had no way of telling where they were pointing the weapon as they blindly worked it into the cell. But Ballard could tell it was pointing right at his face. Ballard grabbed the barrel and shoved it against the wall, pointing it away from himself. As it hit the wall, the shotgun went off making such a loud noise that Ballard staggered back, clasping his hands against his ears and letting out a moan, which was stifled by all of the toothpaste that was still in his mouth. Feels like I'm inside a bell, he thought, his head feeling completely shattered, his equilibrium lost. The non-lethal shotgun had fired off a diversionary device, a flashbang that made an extremely loud noise meant to incapacitate a subject without permanently harming them. I didn't even know that existed. It makes sense though. Yeah. Yeah. As the cert members finally knocked down the mattress and entered the cell, Ballard tried to regain his composure and squatted down in a position like a defensive line man ready for a fight. Two guards entered the room and split up, coming towards Ballard from opposite ends. They wore masks with plastic face guards and body armor from head to toe that reminded Ballard of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Ballard looked back and forth between the two guards. One looked about six feet, eight inches tall and carried a large shield. As the other cert members began to funnel through the door, Ballard found that he recognized and liked most of them. Nevertheless, he felt almost obligated to put up a fight. We're committed now to this little party. The tall guard, the one holding the shield, lunged towards Ballard, but he dropped low and the huge man barreled right over him. The second guard rushed forward next, but Ballard jumped back up and spit the wad of toothpaste he'd been saving in his mouth directly in the man's mask, obstructing his vision. Ballard started barraging the man with a series of fast, wild punches, well aware that the guard would barely feel any of them through the body armor. Hey, it's a party, Ballard thought, as he kept punching. This is what it's expected. By now, six guards had descended upon Ballard And one of them fired a taser into Ballard's right leg. It was the first time he had been shot by a taser and he had seen men go down immediately after one blast. But to Ballard's surprise, he found it didn't hurt very much. As he continued to struggle, another guard fired a second taser shot at him. But once again, it failed to take him down. By now, he was mostly restrained by the half dozen armored men who had piled onto him. But his right arm was still free and he swung it wildly. His adrenaline was pumping so hard, Ballard felt like nothing could stop him. And then he was shot by a third taser blast. This time, it knocked him out cold. Finally.
0: A monster.
1: A monster. Like, I was considering whether to keep this part in, but I was like, you can get a demonstration of how he thinks and how he acts, you know?
0: Yeah, and also, like, so adolescent. Like, it reminded me of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I
1: know. Well, that's because he is – it completely has arrested development. So, like, the next day he went to court and he had, like, a huge bruise on his face. And, of course, they had to tell the court, like, what happened. At this point, Michael's attorneys were like, we got to order a whole battery of psychological and neurological tests to be run on this guy because – that's the only way we're going to get any mitigating factors because he's a total animal, you know?
0: Psychopath, yeah.
1: So the psychologists all agreed that Ballard knew what he had done was wrong and that he was mentally competent to stand trial. It was obvious to all of them that none of his psychological impairments would rise to qualify for an insanity plea. But, woo, boy, did his neuroscans tell a story.
0: Really? The reports
1: claimed that Ballard's neurological testing indicated massive brain dysfunction stemming from multiple head injuries. We see this all the time, guys. Like, wear a helmet. <laughs> Put a helmet on your kids. And that this brain damage did contribute to the commission of his crimes. After digging into Ballard's history, his attorneys discovered more than a dozen events where Ballard had injured his head badly enough to become unconscious for 10-plus minutes. Wow. Wow. Ballard had suffered car and motorcycle accidents, fights where his head was literally bashed against a sidewalk repeatedly. And even once he had been hit in the head with a metal baseball bat, and then after being hit in the head with a metal bat, it, it like basically pushed him off a second story terrace that he then fell and landed on head first. Okay. In one event. Also, he hadn't received medical attention for a single one of these incidents. Ballard's MRI showed that his overall brain volume was within normal limits, but individual structures of the brain were severely damaged, specifically the regions crucial for regulating behavior. I mean, we could have told you that one. You don't need to look at his MRI for that. No. So, though he could appear to be functioning normally, he had huge problems with impulse control, emotional regulation, um, and moral judgment. So, the damage apparent in his brain could and did, in his case, lead to increased aggression, decreased empathy, impulsivity, and peculiar sexual habits. Which I don't want to know about any further with this guy. So uh Dr. Susan Rushing said, it is my opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, Mr. Ballard's head injuries predisposed him to psychosis, antisocial personality disorder, and substance abuse. An insanity defense may be off the table, she said, but evidence existed that Ballard had a psychotic disorder due to traumatic brain injury with prominent delusions, which is a recognized psychiatric illness. And an extreme mental disturbance. So all of the specialists agreed that Ballard's neurological defects were exacerbated and heightened by his psychological scars, the abandonment issues, and the hatred of women specifically.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Leading up to the trial, Michael courted the media and did several interviews attempting to offer a more sympathetic view into his soul. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, nobody was buying that crap. And then he did surprise everyone by pleading guilty to his crimes. He would, of course, still have to try his luck with a jury to determine if he would face the death penalty. But many believed that this was a calculated attempt to have a jury empathize with him the way the parole board once had. He was owning yep, up to it. When he his was crimes. remorseful
0: before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, I didn't buy that for a second.
1: Yep. He's pulling the same shit again because it worked last time. Yep. Yep. He even did like an interview saying like, I'm just owning up to my crimes. I'm sparing the loved ones a trial. I'm sparing Denise's loved ones. Like uh, my attorney's attacking her character. I'm doing it all out of the goodness of my heart. No. No. No, in reality, the DA believed that Michael Ballard was simply trying to escape death row. Yeah, Ballard was no idiot. And by now he certainly knew his way around the prison system. Pennsylvania was extremely unlikely to actually execute him, even if the death penalty was awarded. And even if it did come to pass, it would be after decades of appeals. He wanted life without parole versus death row because life without parole meant a better quality of life. They got more time outside. They had more uh, visits. Mm -hmm. No, no. Yeah. If he got just life without parole, his quality of life would be a hundred times better. So yeah, DA Morganelli was not going to let him live a life of comfort behind bars after everything he had done. And he's like, I'm going to get the death penalty conviction on this case. So the death penalty trial began on May 9th of 2011. In his opening statements, Morganelli tried to discourage the jury from showing any mercy towards Ballard because, the district attorney said, he had already failed when given a second and third chance during both times he was released on parole. He also reminded them that Ballard had killed not only these four victims, but also Donald Richard back in 1991. Yeah. Not one, not two, not three, not four, but Five. This case is about the deaths of five innocent people, Morganelli said, five people, all of whom loved life, all of whom had family and friends that cared about them and who they cared about, and all of whom died a violent and painful death at the hands of this defendant, Michael Ballard. And he pointed out Denise's two young children could easily have been killed as well if they had been home that day. Yeah. they could have been numbers 6 and 7 morganelli said not to mention you
0: know how we're even like having this conversation
1: <laughs> i mean i agree with you yeah. yeah i mean also not to mention though that he said in those letters he wanted to rape the little girl like if she'd been home what would he have done to her
0: jesus
1: uh huh Meanwhile, the defense did their best to humanize Ballard, bringing up his terrible upbringing, his brain damage, the fact that Denise had been his truly only first in love of his life. They tried to make it like discovering her infidelity paired with his psychological issues and neurological damage caused a break with reality. It's like, also, don't blame the victim because your client's a psychopath.
0: Yeah, a break with reality, like... And then he, like, reenacts it in letters to his fucking New girl.
1: Yeah. Like, it's it's so gross. And also, she, she wasn't being unfaithful to him because they didn't have a committed relationship.
0: No. It's Ugh, just
1: disgusting. So that's what they tried to, like, paint it as. But no matter how valid some of these excuses could be, like, yes, the neurological damage, etc., nothing could compare to the horror and emotional heartstrings that were pulled when Morganelli showed the jury the gruesome crime scene photos and had the family members read victim impact statements. So this is from the, the victim impact statements and they are devastating. Geraldine, Denise's mother, spoke about the pain of losing her child and how terrible she felt that Denise would no longer be able to enjoy all of Tristan and Annika's new experiences as they grew up. Denise deserved to make many more memories with her two beautiful children, family, and friends, she said. Denise won't be there to help her children along the path of life. She won't be able to take dozens of photos the way she always did when Tristan and Annika go to proms, graduation, and weddings and put these treasures into already started scrapbooks. The testimony was difficult for Janet Zernhalt, who tried her best to describe life without her husband of 34 years. Her home was no longer a place of comfort, she said, and she could no longer sleep without the assistance of pills. As she neared the end of her statement, Janet broke into tears and banged on the wooden witness stand with both fists. Express Times reporter Sarah Cassie honestly believed Janet was nearing the point of an emotional breakdown. To the reporter, Janet looked like a woman who had reached a point where words could no longer express the turmoil she was feeling inside. So she was trying to physically express it by hitting the witness stand. I look out the window and pray that Steve will pull up in his van, she said. I cry every day driving to and from work. Everyone asks, are you okay? And all I can think about is that I'll never be okay. Never, ever be okay. I love my husband so much. He was my best friend. But the most harrowing testimony came from Jamie Zernheld. Although Jamie was able to maintain her composure much better than her mother had, her words were no less impactful. She said that her father's murder had impacted her so much that her therapist suggested she received the same kind of treatment that soldiers returning from war receive for post-traumatic stress disorder. Jamie said to this day she would still call her parents' answering machine just to hear her father's voice on the message. Working as a first-grade teacher, Jamie said there were days when she would start crying in the middle of her class, And her six-year-old students would comfort her by saying, it's okay because your daddy loves you and he's watching you from heaven. The weekend following this tragedy, my fiance Lenny had planned on asking my father's permission to marry me, Jamie said. He never got that chance. This September, I'm getting married, something I've been looking forward to my whole life since I was a little girl. My daddy won't walk me down the aisle. He won't be there to see his little girl become a wife and someday a mother.
0: Oh, (laughs) Jesse.
1: It's so sad. By the time Jamie was done, nearly half of the jury was in tears. Me too. (laughs) Despite explicit orders from Judge Smith earlier that they were to avoid expressing emotion wherever possible, but juror Bill Falstone couldn't help it. Listening to Jamie talk about Steve Zernhout never getting the chance to meet his grandchildren struck a deep chord with Bill who had grandchildren himself. Even years later, thinking back on Jamie's words would make him tear up if you yeah, were human and had a pulse. I mean, I'm just thinking about Alden not, you know, having her dad. No, it's crazy. It's just so devastating. Oh, I, every time I read that passage, I cried and I was like, I'm not going to cry on the actual show because I've read this like three times. I'm like over it. Um, I'm not over it.
0: Obviously not. No. <laughs> Obviously. Oh my God.
1: Yeah, so it's no wonder at all that the jury deliberations were quick. (laughs) In fact, I'd say the actual discussion took 45 minutes, um, though the jury was out for two hours. It was mostly logistics on how to like move the jury back and forth from the courtroom. In each of the four charges of murder, 12 out of 12 jurors voted for death right from the first vote. Jury four person Bill Falzone thought, I didn't even think you could get twelve people to agree on what to order for lunch
0: so quickly. <laughs> Bill, himself, I mean that's because there's a clear, clear. Oh, this person your path is to what the right, yeah,
1: horrible. He's a danger to society.
0: Yeah. yeah, he's
1: also a danger to the corrections officers. Yeah, like look what he did. Like he would have killed one of those men if he was able to. You know. For sure. This is like they're putting their life at risk too by keeping this guy around. Um, So yeah, so Bill was like actually anti-death penalty. Like he kind of like snuck onto the jury, but he said that after reviewing the evidence and hearing the victim impact statements, he was like, he wiped out three generations of a family. This is what he deserves. He deserves death.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Despite specific instructions from the judge to restrain from showing emotion in the courtroom, an outburst of celebration erupted after the death penalty verdict was read. Come on. Yep. Both Geraldine and Janet Zernheldt still live in the houses where the atrocities took place. Geraldine has custody of Denise's children, like I said, who give her a reason to wake up in the morning and keep going. Steve Zernheldt received numerous posthumous honors for the bravery he exhibited in running to help his neighbors it is bittersweet for janet who still grieves for her husband every day all of the zern children are successful in their respective fields and son justin moved back in with janet to help her cope with the loss as of a news article in 2014 danielle kaufman is still writing letters to michael ballard according what? to fatal yep <laughs> she's such a dumbass. According to Fatal Jealousy, the two had a falling out after the trial because he blamed her for the death penalty verdict, but he must have forgiven her because this recent news article said they were still chatting. Or maybe he just like got bored enough that he was like, I'll take whatever I can get. She said she's still in love with him.
0: I can't. After all of that. I like actually can't.
1: Ugh. As of the publication of Fatal Jealousy in 2014, Ballard was living in an 8 by 10 foot cell, only allowed one visitor per week, and he can never physically touch them. He's only allowed to leave his cell for two hours, five days a week, and he can only take three showers a week. I live as a goddamn pet, he told authors McAvoy and Olenoff. I am taken out for exercise. I am told when to eat. I live in a goddamn cage. I am a pet. This is not a goddamn life. No. You don't get a life anymore. You don't deserve one. Ballard maintains he feels remorse for the deaths of Steven Zernheld and elderly Alvin Marsh, but not Dennis Marsh and still harbors an insane amount of anger towards Denise. So the reason why he said he doesn't regret what he did to Dennis is because he has this like Really bizarre, effed- up biblical idea that men should force their daughters to be chaste, and that because uh, Denise cheated on him, it was also Dennis's responsibility to make his daughter be faithful to him.
0: Psycho. Come on
1: Psychotic. About Denise, he said, "If I could literally dig her the fuck up and do this to her again, I would." That's the amount of rage I still have toward her. Wow. This guy doesn't, like, we've talked about this. Wow. Like, about the death penalty. We are not pro-death penalty, but this guy doesn't deserve to be alive. He's dangerous.
0: No, yeah. Ugh. But I love how mad he is about how horrible his life is right now.
1: Ugh. I know. I do like that. You, you yeah. are not a goddamn pet. You are something that lives under ugh, the bottom of the aquarium.
0: All of the pets that he tortured and killed are getting their revenge on him.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: The opossum is the like. Opossum. Hmm.
1: The opossum <laughs> high fiving the cats in little like critter heaven. Look at that guy.
0: Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. <laughs>
1: With their creepy little opossum hands that look like hands.
0: Yeah. They do love high fiving though. They do. Yeah. Uh, I told
1: you my brother has an opossum that just like walks into his house because he has a cat door.
0: No, they're, they're 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 like so ugly, but like so sweet. They're so
1: sweet. And they they eat ticks. So guys, don't kill opossums. Try to like not run them over because they're good for uh controlling Lyme disease. <laughs> um I mean you shouldn't try to run them over anyway. I don't know what I'm saying. Try not to run them over. <laughs> uh, Okay, so in 2015, Ballard requested to drop further appeals and was given an execution date of October 19th, 2015 by lethal injection. However, in October, Governor Tom Wolf granted a stay of execution under a moratorium on capital punishment in this entire state. As of this recording, Michael Eric Ballard is 48 years old. And it looks like he will live out the rest of his natural life behind bars. But that actually makes me really happy because he doesn't want to be there. And that's why he dropped appeals so that they would kill him. And I hope he lives forever and his life just sucks. Uh, Jesse. What? A A barf. It's a barf story. There's like not a a, barf. There's no good time to be had in this one. It is like just... Terrible. The only
0: good time is the opossum revenge. (laughs) The only, the the little opossum silver
1: lining here. That's it. That's it. Oh my God. So guys, we are almost done with our maternity episodes. If you have been enjoying this ride with love murder, please, please, please uh, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us uh, go up the charts and have people find us. And we will send you a code for some free stickers. In conclusion, maybe find another pen pal who hasn't brutally murdered five people.
0: That'd be a good start for that girl. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Just like a bare, bare minimum of your pen pals. Shout out to uh, all the bartenders who kept track of the psychopathic man wearing a Superman tee ordering (laughs) Long Island iced teas to track... And trace all of his steps you know also just shout out to all of the bartenders
1: who's ever had to make a long island iced tea we stand with you <laughs> and as always remember you're only 12 traumatic brain injuries away from becoming a murderer so wear helmets and stay safe thanks for listening
0: goodbye bye guys